You're listening to Lozano Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies. Welcome back to the Lozano Smith podcast. My name is Joshua Whiteside, Lozano Smith, the senior counsel from the firm San Luis Obispo office and student practice group co-leader. Today, we've got a very fun and interesting topic, one that uh, has been on the minds of many of our administrators uh, throughout this last year, which is the FAIR Act. And uh, one that I think a lot of people maybe know somewhat some parts of it. What does it mean? What does the law say? And uh, I think most folks are wondering how do you practically implement uh, the FAIR Act? So we've got two experts in the field uh, joining us for today's podcast. We've got Trevin Sims and Angelique Kramer. And Trevin, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Okay, thank you, Josh. Uh, Again, my name is Trevin Sims. I'm a partner, uh, largely resident in our Los Angeles office, but I also manage our San Diego office. And I have been practicing law since 1993 and practicing education and related topics of loss with Lozano Smith since 1996. Very good. Angelique? I'm Angelique Kramer. I work in our San Diego office. I'm senior counsel. Uh, I've been practicing education law for about nine years. Uh, I've been with Lozano Smith for two years, um, and I work primarily on community college and school district clients with L&E matters and student issues. Very good. Well, I'm thankful for you both being here today. I know this this topic uh, can be challenging for folks to kind of grasp and understand. So why don't we start with the basics? Um, what is the FAIR Act, just generally speaking? So the FAIR Act, FAIR, F-A-I-R, stands for Fair, Accurate, Inclusive, and Respectful. Um, it was passed in 2012, or 2011, implemented in 2012, And it requires that the social studies curriculum for K-12 districts include um, representation of LGBT Americans, specifically their contributions to our state and our country. And Trevin, why why did this law come to pass? Do we know, like, what what was the basis for this uh, bill becoming law? Well, the legislative history... uh, does a good job of kind of walking through uh, the rationale for the legislature and citing statistics about uh, bullying and other issues faced by LGBTQ students. And not only did the law state that we needed to include uh, the contributions of LGBTQ Americans in curriculum, but also it has anti-discrimination provisions. Uh, So the reason for that was one, so that LGBTQ plus students could sort of see themselves in the curriculum and see representation of of them in the curriculum, but also to address the bullying and other um, incidents of harassment that LGBTQ students were um, enduring. And Angelique, isn't the FAIR Act, it doesn't include more individuals than just the LGBTQ uh, population and, and the curriculum talking about contributions of that uh, segment of, uh, of America? Are there other groups that are referenced in the FAIR Act? 
Yes, there are. And actually, the FAIR Act was just adding LGBT Americans to the list of groups that are already included as groups that need to be represented in the curriculum for the social science courses. Got it. Okay. So there are other uh, groups that were already in the law that already had to be represented in the curriculum, such as those that belong to different races and cultures. Correct. And this is this act, this FAIR Act, um, was designed to include LGBT Americans and how they've contributed to our overall history as, as America. Is that fair to say? Exactly. Yes, exactly. Because it it included, for example, it had to represent both men and women previously, Native Americans, African Americans, Mexican Americans. Um, and so this was the legislature and the evolution of, of that representation saying, we need to make sure that our social studies curriculum also gives vision to this group as well. So from a, from a base sort of fundamental understanding of this law, it's really talking about somewhere in the curriculum in a K-12 setting, um, these individuals and the impact that they've had on our society, not really requiring us to talk about, you know, how, how does sex between two individuals of the same gender or how does someone become transgender? It's not really talking about those things, or, or is it? Yeah, no, that's a good distinction. And we may talk about this a little bit more later, but um, the FAIR Act itself, in terms of what the statute specifically requires that we add and include in the curriculum is fairly narrow. And it does not talk about gender identity, um, sexual identity, those sorts of things. Um, But we do have Uh, that represented in, for example, the Healthy Youth Act, where we talk about health and sex education. And there's some crossover, um, and I think there's largely a lot of confusion about what constitutes social studies curriculum for purposes of the FAIR Act and what constitutes health curriculum um, for purposes of gender identity and sexual identity. So let's dive into that. Angelique, what is the California Healthy Youth Act? Um, how does that, what is that and how does that interplay like Trevin was saying? Sure. Um, the California Healthy Youth Act was developed to help students, young students, develop healthy attitudes toward growth, development, body image, gender, and sexual orientation and relationships. So for a school district that elects to offer comprehensive sex education earlier than seventh grade, they can provide that instruction, um, but it has to be age appropriate and medically accurate. And there's also an option that it has to inform, the district has to inform parents that it will be discussing those topics and allow parents to opt their student out of those discussions. And and that's a big distinction, right, Trevin? Uh, the California Healthy Youth act in that focus on sex ed, uh, in, in that talk about gender identity, sexual orientation, that has an opt out for parents, but the FAIR Act does not. Is that correct? Yes. Um, the, the, the way curriculum is structured in the education code, the statutory scheme provides for, these are the areas that we're required to provide instruction in. And it talks about 
social sciences, physical education, English, math, all those things. And then there's a particular section that includes exemptions. And one of those exemptions we may talk more about uh, deals with an exemption from uh, health instruction that may conflict with religious beliefs. And then in addition, you have the Healthy Youth Act, which appears later in the statutory scheme, and it includes its own specific exemption for parents from certain Healthy Youth Act content. But, but there's, there's a nuance and a caveat to that. So it seems like we've got essentially sex ed, which goes into the details of adolescence and, and the growth and the health development of a body and the different relationships that folks might want to be involved in and how does that you know work or not work, right? Uh, and then the FAIR Act really is more focused on kind of like a history lesson or social science lesson about how an individual, um, you know, came to be, you know, where were they born? How did they, uh, you know, what challenges did they experience in life and what did, what benefit did they provide to society? So like, I'm thinking of like the FAIR Act being more al- along the lines of like teaching about Martin Luther King or about Cesar Chavez and related, like maybe someone like Harvey Milk would be in that same vein. Whereas the Healthy Youth Act and the sex ed education, um, that's more focused on like students and how their bodies are growing and developing. Is that a fair overall picture to paint, Angelique? Yes, that's correct. And is there any uh, prohibition that is part of the FAIR Act? It's things that you can't do as part of the FAIR Act? Yes. So as Trevin mentioned, um, the FAIR Act, part of the purpose is also to prohibit discrimination in uh, curriculum materials. So the FAIR Act includes a prohibition against including LGBT representations in curriculum that are not accurate. Uh, So that would be things that are like using a stereotypical representation or a negative representation of someone based on their LGBTQ status. Um, so that is prohibited by the FAIR Act as well. So really we're, we're talking in terms of like, if I'm thinking about next steps for a district and how to react to the FAIR Act, seems like one of those steps would be to at least do some cursory curriculum overview to make sure that the curriculum materials and the supplemental materials that a teacher might use in the classroom are just simply not mean or inaccurate or, or portray negatively uh, LGBTQ individuals, just like how the ed code was previously modified to say, we can't have those same sorts of uh, stereotype, negative stereotypes for women or for black or Hispanic individuals. Is that, is that fair to say, we'll say? <laughs> yes, that's correct. And then um, in terms of how this is implemented, Trevin, can you speak to what should a school district be thinking about, about how to kind of meet some sort of compliance? Is there a compliance check, I guess we'll say, uh, for FAIR Act uh, materials? Yeah, so good question. And I think we need to take a step back okay, and just think about how the FAIR Act and the Healthy Youth Act really fit into the state's overall curriculum scheme. Because 
it starts, we have the FAIR Act that specifies what we'll include in terms of representation and contribution. But I think it's important to understand that the FAIR Act does not state all everything that we're required to have in the social studies curriculum. The social studies curriculum goes well beyond the FAIR Act. And if you look at the state standards and then the state frameworks, um, and then the instructional materials adopted by the state that many or most districts use, the LGBTQ plus related content under the social studies um, curriculum topic goes well beyond the FAIR Act. So what the challenge that a lot of districts face um, with their communities and families who have different beliefs about uh, LGBTQ plus related issues and how they want to teach their children or have instruction is determining if, for example, there's some instruction in the classroom that focuses on gender identity or, or uh, sexual identity, identity, uh, family constructs, but it's not necessarily a discussion of, um, of sex, uh, is that health content that falls under the opt-out of the Healthy Youth Act? Or is that just general social studies content for which there is no opt-out provision in the curriculum construct? That's an, that's an important um, moment for, for folks to to like be thinking about the confluence here of, of parents' rights and the district right to control the curriculum. Um, is, is there any sort of, uh, uh, you know, um, helpline or anything that CDE is helping provide guidance on, on that sort of nuanced area that you just discussed about, Trevin? Um, I'm not aware of a help or hotline from CDE. It, it would be great, particularly right now, yeah. Um, on this issue. Um, but there isn't. There there are FAQs from CDE. There's a really good um, sort of write-up from CDE talking about interplay of the FAIR Act and the Healthy Youth Act and how the parent opt-out applies. Um, but I know there's not agreement out in the world on that. I've seen publications from um, various parents' rights organizations that that disagree with how that opt-out applies. Um, so I think, you know, for districts, it's an area where, and you talked about parents' rights. Um, under, the, under the current curriculum structure in California, one of the primary drivers of the state moving to this construct was a recognition of parent rights um, and um, local control and flexibility. So there's already a, a statement of parents' rights in the education code related to curriculum adoption. Um, there has been a bill that I think was put forth this year that died in committee 
to expand those rights, but there's already a right to know what's going to be taught to be able to review curriculum. Um, and, you know, it's important that parents understand those rights and that districts um, respect those rights in their partnership with, with parents um, on what is a fairly sensitive issue. So it, so it seems like we've got some guidance from CDE, still a lot of chatter, and I think a lot of confusion about that, that gray area. You know, do we talk about gender identity? Is that um, falling within the Healthy Youth Act? Is that falling within the, the FAIR Act? I think certainly, you know, for questions and concerns, you know, obviously, you know, we're a law firm. We can, we, you know, if you are an administrator listening to this podcast, you can pick up the phone to, to call us to walk through this issue. But where would, where would these sort of debates or disputes, how would these come about? What, what format would like a parent that is concerned and says, you know what, you know, I was, maybe I wasn't part of the curriculum review, but I now am aware of something that my kid was taught and I'm upset about it. I want to, I want to, you know, put my fist on the table here. Where would they go? What, what, what process would we use? Um, so a lot of times where this comes up is we see parents bringing either concerns to the teacher and wanting to know what's going on in the classroom or escalating it to the principal and trying to deal with school district administration on what's happening in the classroom and trying to get more information. Um, but we also have had some clients dealing with parent groups and individuals speaking at board meetings to try and voice their concerns about what is being taught in the schools or what should or should not be taught in the schools. Um, so we're seeing that happen quite a bit recently. Trevin, what are you seeing on this? Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, we're seeing it largely in the primary grades, you know, the, the three to um, sixth grade. Uh, and for example, there might be a discussion in the classroom simply about gender identity and uh, different family constructs. Um, you know, the, the boy with two moms or two dads and um, or reading a book that has sort of transgender themes. Um, it's age appropriate, but it may conflict with a particular stu student's parents' religious beliefs. And so then the question becomes, do they have the right to opt their child out of that discussion? Um, and this is where I think understanding the difference between the Healthy Youth Act and the FAIR Act come in. Because when you look at the Healthy Youth Act, there is a specific opt-out for parents. But then there's a section that says that, that the Healthy Youth Act, including its opt-out, does not apply to instruction or materials or presentations about gender, gender identity, gender expression, sexual orientation, um, and does not discuss human productive organs and their functions. So the, by inclusion of that language, I think the legislature was trying to make sure that the opt-out did not apply to the sort of general um, LGBTQ plus 
discussions that can go on in a classroom at an age-appropriate level that don't have to do with, quote-unquote, the human productive and health uh, aspects of it. Much like we need to know about that subject for interacting with our peers in the working world and, and in talking about uh, different family compositions more generally. I think it's, you know, we talk about foster parents and, um, par- you know, people who are maybe staying with grandparents instead of, instead of with parents for a variety of different reasons or only with a single parent. So uh, those family composition issues, those pop up really early. Um, so that makes sense that they would be talked about in that primary uh, sort of framework or, or time period for, for a student's education. Angelique, what about the, the sort of uh, more political, uh, controversial discussion that maybe, uh, say, a high school teacher wants to have with their social studies class in light of, a, like, say, a recent bill um, that might be circulating across the news and maybe it's targeted at the LGBTQ population and uh, and so the teacher wants to kind of on it on their own outside of the normal curriculum um, framework uh, talk about that particular issue with their classmates. Is there, is there some place that uh, most districts have that gives them direction on on how to manage that conversation, or is the principal supposed to know before that that conversation happens? Well there's a process that's pretty clearly defined for reviewing and approving the curriculum and instructional materials that a school is going to use. Um, And they do that analysis of, is this related to the themes and ideas that we want students to be learning at this level? And is the content used to introduce those topics age appropriate for those students? So in the normal curriculum approval process, they've looked at those issues and whether or not something is related to what should be taught in the classroom at a particular grade level. So that's something that the district needs to pay attention to and look out for and have their curriculum team working with teachers to know the responsibilities of the teacher in that classroom. Yeah, and and I th- I think that's a good point. And this scenario that you raised, Josh, um, can happen quite often, and be and be very spontaneous. Sometimes, a teacher may want to introduce this discussion from this current event, and they could want to do it for multiple reasons, or it can come up from the dialogue that's going on in the classroom and a student raises a question, well, what about this? I've heard about this new bill or I saw this this TV uh, news report about this. And particularly if you have, uh, if it's, you know, a social studies or history or whatever discussion, and they want to use current events and, and current topics within that modality, um, it, it can be a, a, a difficult thing to sort of manage because on one hand, um, yeah, a district has the right to control uh, teachers' speech in the classroom as in the scope of their employment, instructing students, but at the same time, um, 
there there has been this recognition of some level of autonomy for teachers um, in those discussions. And so particularly where we're now having this um, discussion between perspectives on this particular content, I think it's important that district administration is having a dialogue not only with the parents, but also with um, their teachers and their representatives to try and come to uh, a, a place that hopefully respects the rights of all the parties involved. And I believe most districts have a controversial issues policy that should give direction on how teachers should address those supplemental conversations, uh, maybe if it's not planned, you know, after the fact, how they might, uh, you know, talk to the principal and keep them aware. So that way, if a parent, you know, calls with concerns after that class period, the principal is at least aware of and be able to kind of initially help the teacher through that scenario. So that's another place to, to look for, for assistance. Well, this has been a great discussion. Um, I will throw it to both of you for, you know, any last comments on this topic. Uh, let's start with Angelique. You know, I think this is one of those areas where more conversation about this issue really helps get to what the issues are on both sides and what issues people are having with this transition. So uh, are teachers wanting more flexibility in the classroom or wanting to get into a deeper discussion of issues that might be difficult for some students because they are um, bumping up against some of those cultural and potentially religious views that their parents might be talking about at home. Um, so having that dialogue go throughout the process on every level, both with teachers in the classroom and with the review and approval of curriculum topics and instructional materials that are being used in the classroom, um, having those discussions with the community and getting out all the points of view and really working through those issues is really helpful to have everyone find common ground on what is it we are doing in schools? What should we be teaching our students? And maybe there are some issues that are left for being dealt with at home, but there are some issues that need to be discussed in the classroom. And how do we work through the different points of view and how that happens? Sure. So uh, I think in addressing this issue, in my, my approach with clients has, one, been educating parents um, and sometimes staff on why we as a district are teaching what we're teaching. Because I don't think particularly outside of the school district, there's much understanding of how curriculum standards and adoption work in California. And there is this, I'll call it fragile balance between state control of curriculum and local flexibility. So when we, ad when we adopted the new curriculum structure, it, the, the policy behind it, again, was recognizing parents' rights, recognizing the need to have consistent 
standards applied across the state, but allowing flexibility for local communities to address unique aspects of their community. And so that's why the state adopts the standards and it has standards for each area, social studies, health, mathematics, all the rest. But it specifically says districts are not required to adopt the standards. Same thing from the standards goes into more detail about what the state expects students to learn at each grade level at the frameworks that are adopted below that. But once again, districts aren't necessarily required to adopt the framework. And then the state will adopt instructional materials that are consistent with and meet its standards and frameworks. But also local districts are not required to adopt the state instructional materials. But at the same time, if the instructional materials that are adopted at the local level don't meet certain aspects and requirements, then you know the, the district is potentially subject to uh, some negative ramifications. And there is a process that the state can use to help districts certify their alternative instructional materials are sufficient or districts can self-certify. Um, so in that framework, it's important for districts to make sure that their parents understand how we got to where we got as a district. Have we adopted the state instructional materials? And most districts do. And then I think there's some confusion between what truly constitutes health content that parents have a right to opt out of and what constitutes social studies content that parents don't. And that social studies content that deals with LGBTQ plus issues goes well beyond the FAIR Act content. And in in my interactions with districts and their parent communities, it's been really helpful at least for people to understand the distinctions. Even if we agree to still disagree, um, understanding, okay, here's the framework and here's how, if you have concerns, here's how you might be able to address those concerns. And frankly, one of those is going to the state. Um, uh, and my expectation is that the state to deal with this issue on a statewide basis is going to have to update and better clarify the social studies standards and frameworks on this issue. But, but I've seen no indication that they're doing it soon. Well, we'll, we'll keep our fingers crossed that we get more Guidance. I know that um, many uh, administrators across the state, uh, probably listening to this full podcast, uh, you know, may still have questions. And if they do, we encourage you to reach out to legal counsel, especially our Lazaro Smith attorneys who have expertise. Trevin, Angelique, this has been a great 
conversation. Thank you so much for your insights and knowledge on the FAIR Act and sharing it with us today. As always seems to be the case, our educational agencies will need to be ready for change. And the best way to do that is to sign up for our firm's client news briefs and listen to the Lozano Smith podcast. We encourage you to visit our podcast page at lozanosmith.com forward slash podcast to find links and additional details on the topic that we discussed today. And uh, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. For Trevin, Angelique, and myself, and all of us at Lozano Smith, have a great day. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic, please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout California. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard. Thank you.